0: UPFW in Washington and WBAI in New York. I'm
1: Steve Goodwin. All right. And the previous program was Let's Talk with John Kane and Regan DeLoggins. And that is usually heard on Thursday starting at 3 p.m. Next week, we will see if it will be back on at 3 p.m. Not trying to create any kind of conspiracies here. I'm just just. Just stating fact um stay tuned for driving forces with jeff simmons coming up and again 7 p.m clapping outside appreciation of essential workers followed by a new york sings along to bill withers lean on me this is wbai new york 99.5 fm and wbai.org online stay tuned Thank mm-hmm.
2: Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for tuning in to WBAI today. As Reggie said, you were just listening to Let's Talk with John Kane and Regan DeLogans. I hope as you listen today that you're in good health and you're in good spirits. I recognize how difficult this period can be. It seems every day that we learn of someone that we know uh, who has tested positive or passed away, a constant reminder for me, one that you might hear occasionally during the show, is the high frequency of ambulances that are going by. The sirens are blaring through uh, my apartment here in Jackson Heights quite a number of times because Elmhurst Hospital is just a short distance away. These days are often filled with sadness, but they're also filled with hope as we connect with those who have become sick and we and we reach out to help them. we applaud as Reggie said, the essential workers every day at seven o'clock. This has become very religious for me as well uh, that I now you know hoist open that window and applaud. and it is just a moment every day that brings a little more levity uh, to what is going on. Also earlier today, we learned that the preliminary test results that, uh, that the governor uh, was, we were anxiously waiting to hear from the governor, have shown that one of every five New York City residents tested positive for antibodies to the coronavirus. So that means that the virus had actually spread much more widely than we had known before, but it also means that many more people than we had realized had actually encountered the virus and survived. A sign of hope, momentary? It could be too early to tell, but what's clear though, is that there's still a long road ahead until a, fill, a full recovery. As unemployment soars and our economy and our city and nation suffers and suffers drastically, it's obvious this pandemic is going to just create immense hardship for many of us in the years ahead. Economists are now portraying devastating effects that are rippling across all sectors. Uh, and government leaders, I'm sure if you've been following what's going on in Washington, D.C., they've earmarked billions of funds through stimulus plans. Even at those allotments are likely not going to be enough to remedy all that's needed. Experts are predicting immeasurable poverty, worldwide food shortages, this was highlighted in the New York Times today, longstanding challenges to maintain shelter, and that's what I'm going to focus on on today's episode of Driving Forces, how the pandemic is renewing, uh, how it's impacting our housing ability, our stability, and what our officials are doing or need to do to keep people in their homes. People who may have lost their jobs or people who are struggling to pay bills because they can't work right now because they've been ill or they've had to step away from their work to care for people who are struggling with health issues created by COVID-19. In just a little while... I'm going to talk with Sean Donovan, who served as President Obama's uh, in his President Obama's cabinet uh, for Obama's full eight years in office as the uh, Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And then in the second half hour, I'll discuss the impact of the pandemic on homelessness in our city with Anya Duggan, who leads the Partnership for the Homeless. And I also encourage you to stay with us because I'll bring you another installment of New Yorkers in Crisis, a Coronavirus Diary by RWBAI correspondent Celeste Katz. And near the end of the show, I'm going to tell you about a special event that WBAI is going to uh, present to you on Sunday morning, an interfaith vigil uh, that occurred earlier this week, uh, but we're going to bring it to you in its entirety. It was created by the Queensborough president and enlisted voices from a number of religious leaders as well as elected officials in our area. And if we do have time, I'd like to take some calls If I don't get to it next week, I promise you, our dedicated listeners, that I'd love to be able to spend more time hearing your thoughts on the world around us. Uh, Brief news right now, and then we're going to get to our guest. And, Reggie, feel free to interrupt me when we've got the guest on the line. Okay. Uh, Great. President Trump signed an executive order this Might not seem surprising to you because he's found a way to suspend immigration for 60 days. This affects people who are applying for green cards and visas to enter the country. Could affect tens of thousands of applicants. Now, since most immigration services already were on hold because of the pandemic, it seems that this order was largely symbolic, but the president said he would reevaluate this and then he could potentially expand it or extend it. Here in New York City, if you had not been following, the New York City Council held held a meeting virtually yesterday, and during this meeting, New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson put forth a broad virus relief package, a so-called bill of rights, and in this it would uh, protect tenants, small businesses, essential workers, people who are homeless as well. Some of the aspects, and this is what we'll be talking about with our guests, but also in the future on future episodes, I'd love to hit on some of these issues. Paid sick leave for so-called gig workers, extra pay for non-salaried essential workers at big companies until this state of emergency is lifted, and also a ban on the firing of essential workers without just cause. Also within this. Uh, Measure. This measure would give renters who have been affected financially by the virus and shut down more time to pay their rent. It also would offer housing protection to essential workers. Uh, The measure would prevent marshals and sheriffs also from collecting debt or evicting residential or commercial tenants affected by the virus until April of next year, a year from now. Additionally, one other action the city took, which is interesting, voted on legislation to create or actually preserve 2,000 units of affordable housing. In other news, what's interesting, we've all talked about the high unemployment rate and how this could affect people's abilities to be able to keep a roof over their heads. But there was a new report that came out by the National Multifamily Housing Council, and it found that by April 19th, just a few days ago, most tenants in the 11.5 million rental apartments that it had surveyed had paid at least some of their rent. So they're saying that 89% of tenants made their payments in April so far, but we're still in the middle of, not even, I don't even think we're in the middle of this. This pandemic could go on for some time. So people's ability to be able to put food on the table and make ends meet and keep shelter uh, might be severely impacted. Also, what happened? Mayor de Blasio He unveiled a target mitigation strategy for the 400,000 people who live in our NYCHA housing, and they've been facing significant challenges during the crisis. And I'll be able to talk with my first guest a little about this and how he sees uh, whether this is the right move, whether it's a a move that took uh, long to... Uh, to be able to uh, announce, and that included opening walk-in testing centers and providing protective equipment for folks, a food delivery service, and more. So with that, I'm gonna get to my first guest, Sean Donovan. He has dedicated his life to public service, tackled the biggest challenges facing New York City and the country, and he's fought for people and communities that have been left behind. If you have not heard his name, well, Sean served in President Obama's cabinet for his full eight years in office. He was the 15th secretary of the US Department of Housing and Urban Development, where he led the fight against the nation's unprecedented foreclosure crisis. Under his leadership, HUD, families, HUD helped families rent or buy affordable homes, revitalized distressed communities, fought discrimination, and also dramatically reduced homelessness. And after Hurricane Sandy, the president had asked him to lead the Hurricane Sandy Rebuilding Task Force uh, to leave a more resilient region than before the storm had hit. Uh, you might recognize his name because before joining President Obama, he served as the commissioner here in New York City of the New York City Department of Housing, Preservation and Development. And also because earlier this year he had announced that he had planned to run to become the next mayor of New York City. Now, while I normally would want to focus my interviews on that topic, I really don't feel it, it is right these days just to talk about politics and elections. I know we have a presidential election coming up, that's the difference, but that's a different what scenario. But when it comes to our local elections here, everything is really just adjusting. We're all adapting to what is going on in the world around us. So I wanted Sean on to talk about what lessons he's learned along the way, what he thinks of the local and federal response to the crisis, and what solutions need to be considered. And we'll always have him back on to talk about the mayoral race. Sean Donovan, welcome to WBAI.
3: Jeff, it's great to be with you.
2: So uh, I've talked a little about you know, what is going on in the world around us about some of the recent developments. First off, can you just give me a sense of how you feel about the federal, the state and the city responses to the pandemic?
3: Well, Jeff, um, speaking from from experience, you know, I I started as budget director for President Obama in the summer of 2014. Three weeks into that job, the Ebola crisis hit. And uh, I worked not only on that, uh, very closely with the president and the vice president, but but also on Zika and many other health crises that uh, we face. And look, you can't attack any problem when you don't know how big the problem is or where it is. And so clearly the biggest failure here was the lack of getting testing started quickly and, and widely. And at the end of the day, Public health strategies, when when the rubber meets the road, are really about who is sick, where are they, tracing their contacts, and it was impossible to do that uh, because the federal failure to really uh, make the testing widely available. So first and foremost, that's the thing that put us kind of uh, behind, and and we were flying blind in many ways. I will say, uh, despite Uh, having that handicap, I've seen at the state level, uh, Governor Cuomo, I I think, do a really good job of telling people the truth and of really making sure that uh, folks have the information that they need to to be able to make decisions. So I I give him pretty high marks, despite the failures at the federal level.
2: And when we talk about the federal response, or initially the the denial or the blame, there'd be certain uh, stages of that. How do you believe your former president would have handled this differently?
3: Well, uh, I remember talking very directly about this. One of the things President Obama told all of us who were political appointees in the middle of, of Ebola and other health crises was that we really made it, needed to make sure that we were telling the truth, that health experts were speaking to the American people, and uh, that we are inspiring and uniting people, and 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 really that's kind of the opposite of what we've seen from Tre- President Trump, frankly. And and look, I a lot of people don't know that the HUD secretary is actually deeply involved in disaster recovery, and and this was the reason President Obama asked me to lead the recovery after after Sandy, and. There's nothing like the moment when you walk into a neighborhood, um, when you meet families that have been directly affected by a crisis like Sandy or or like the the Corona crisis. When when you look in that family's eyes, what you see is not someone who's looking at you as a Democrat or a Republican. Um, They're looking at you as somebody who is from the government and is the person that they're depending on help them get access to what they need. They're looking to hear the truth, not uh, a rosy scenario, but really what uh, it's going to take to help them recover. And they're looking to be united, to to work with their community and their neighborhood more broadly. And I'll never forget those moments. You know, I I, I lost friends and and neighbors in in Sandy. I watched friends' businesses and lives be completely upended um, right in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. and, And That's what President Obama would have told us, is look those folks in the eye, tell them the truth, inspire them and unite them at a moment like this. And unfortunately, that's not what we're getting from our presidents today.
2: And in talking about inspiring and uniting, we're also in the middle of this presidential race. Joe Biden receiving a good amount of support right now from his previous challengers as we move ahead, obviously Well, clearly to me, he will be the Democratic nominee. But what are you seeing from him and what he is saying that would work and would bring, you know, that would be inspiring and would unite people, uh, especially as we move ahead and we have to uh, work to restore our economy?
3: Yeah. So, look, I think one thing you know about Joe Biden, and I know this from having worked very, very closely with him, is that he tells it like he sees it. And, and I think he would bring that ability to level with the American people uh, and to and to lift them up in a way that he's uh, he's done all his career. I think the other key thing I would say about Joe Biden's leadership, and, and really I saw this very directly. You know, I, I started as HUD uh, in the middle of the worst housing crisis of our lifetimes and went to work on the Recovery Act. President Obama asked uh, Vice President Biden to lead the implementation of the Recovery Act, and and I worked side by side on on that. And, And the thing that I think Joe understood about crisis is you obviously have to focus on the immediate. You have to cure whether it's coronavirus or the underlying economic collapse that led to the Great Recession. But you also have to be thinking about crisis as an opportunity to really get on the, the long-term structural challenges that led to the crisis in the first place. You know, President Obama used to, like, used to like to say, never let a crisis go to waste. And so what I think Joe Biden would be able to do in this moment is to be able to think about what are the underlying disparities that we're seeing really brought to light in this in this crisis just as he did after uh, when the Great Recession hit. One example is he built a middle class task force that I worked very closely with him on and and we tried to build a fairer mortgage system that wasn't going to victimize people of color as as we had seen going into the uh, the mortgage crisis and so not only were we were going to solve the immediate crisis but we were going to try and build a fairer system that would make sure, Everyone could get a mortgage and get a mortgage that was safe and would help them build equity. And so those are the kinds of things that that never letting a crisis go to waste that I think Joe Biden has learned and and would really make sure that the country emerged not just where it was before the crisis, but actually stronger.
2: And it's interesting you mentioned that about the disproportionate impact on people of color. We think about what is going on with the pandemic and how it's disproportionately impacting uh, those who are Hispanic and Black in, in New York and across the country. And I'm curious, based on your experience when you worked to reduce homelessness and, and you steered HUD through the housing crisis, what were the lessons that you learned that that you that apply now? But what are the new challenges?
3: Yeah look, I I think it is absolutely clear whether it's a natural disaster like like Sandy, whether it's a man-made disaster like the mortgage crisis or uh, a a pandemic like we're facing now, it is always true that the people and the communities that were most vulnerable before the crisis hits are going to be hit the hardest by the crisis itself. I've seen it over and over again. And it means that as we're thinking about solutions, as we're putting those solutions in place, we always have to lead with uh, a question of, is it working in the hardest hit communities? Is it working uh, for the hardest hit folks? And that has to be a central principle of uh, the work that we do to, to rebuild after this crisis. It was always a central principle in the, in the work that I, I did. And, and just to take one very specific example, um, and this goes to my point as well about not letting a crisis go to waste. One of the things, one of the many disparities that this crisis has exposed is the digital divide. You know, too many people think of the digital divide as something, well, rural communities don't have broadband because they don't have the wires in the ground. Um, the real issue in New York City is that we've seen so many uh, folks who have been vulnerable to this crisis don't have devices uh, to be able to use. We, we've seen that for school kids who are trying to do distance learning, the homeless in particular, um, unable to continue their educations because they don't have access to the technology. And it's not just uh, having a laptop or a, or a tablet. It's also that oftentimes service is too expensive. There are many buildings in the, in the city that still aren't wired properly to be able to get high-speed internet. And I think we ought to come out of this crisis making an absolute commitment that we're going to make sure that every New Yorker, no matter what they look like, where they live, is going to have the technology they need to be able to survive in a crisis like this, to be able to order food, to be able to stay connected, to get um, the help that they need from the government. But but also think about how in a digital world like ours, how does it how does a child learn effectively without that? Um You could be able to see a doctor uh, with telemedicine going forward. You could start a business if you're connected to the right. And so we really ought to have a kind of Marshall Plan for the city coming out of this that says we've got to connect every single New Yorker through the best uh, digital infrastructure uh, in the world.
2: And in leading into your segment, I talked a little about the mayor making an announcement about some efforts he's taking regarding NYCHA. Uh, Do you think New York City has done enough uh, amid this pandemic to assist those, support those, and be as proactive as possible when it comes to the 400,000 folks that live in NYCHA facilities?
3: Look, NYCHA has long-term challenges that we need to work on. Obviously, the conditions in in far too many apartments are are just conditions that no New Yorker should have to live in. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done, and, and I've been working on that for my whole career, but particularly in the last few years. Just just last fall, I brought together leaders from around the country to think about new solution, solutions that we could bring um, to NYCHA. So there's a there's a long term strategy to to rebuild and improve uh, conditions in public housing in New York that has to be a central focus for the next mayor. One in 14 New Yorkers lives in public housing, one in 14. And so as goes NYCHA, as goes public housing in New York, so goes the city more broadly, I believe. But specifically in the midst of this crisis, um, I think we do need to do more. And and this goes back to the point I just made that those who are the most vulnerable before the crisis are those who get hurt the most. And and one area that I've specifically been working on is how do we make sure that folks can uh, continue to get good nutritious food in uh, public housing and in other communities that have been hardest hit by the by the crisis. This is something where, you know, we have so many seniors or other homebound folks that uh, really need help. The city has has taken some efforts on that that are reaching uh, many folks. But I think we need to do more. And and in particular, we have many restaurants that are that are dark. Uh, their kitchens have gone dark. Those are folks who are out of work and they're and they're kitchens that could be producing food at a time when we desperately need it. And so um, one of the solutions, I think, is to make sure that in communities around public housing, that we're bringing kitchens back to life uh, in restaurants that can put people back to work, but also feeding folks healthy, nutritious food at a time when many are losing incomes or because of health, they're not able to, to cook for themselves. It's just one example of something more that I think we could be doing.
2: And I'm glad you talked about that. We've only got just about a minute or two left. And, you know, I know this uh, segment is not focused on your future plans uh, more broadly. But uh, given that the world is changing around us, it, it, it does beg the question, are you still moving towards that to, uh, to run in 2021? Where does that stand now?
3: Look, uh, as you rightly said at the top of the, uh, the interview, this is not a time when people are thinking about politics. Um, it's not a time for for campaigning. I I, I was very excited about the, the first month uh, and the response that we got at the beginning of the campaign. But but right now, my uh, immediate focus is all about what's happening in New York City and uh, what can I do to make a difference in this crisis? That's why I'm working on uh, the food issues that I talked about. It's why I've been talking uh To members of Congress like Hakeem Jeffries and Nydia Velasquez um, and a range of others about the housing solutions that we can put in place, the ways that we can help the homeless not just get housed now, but stay housed after the crisis ends. And so that's really my focus is is the immediate crisis and how does New York survive and even emerge stronger uh, coming out of this
4: crisis.
2: And uh, as I get ready to wrap up, I ask every one of my guests this. Uh, It's really on a a more personal, granular level. How have you personally been impacted by coronavirus?
3: Well, um, you know, just this week, a very close friend lost her her dad to the virus. Uh, It's something that uh, I've experienced directly. I got a very mild case early on, and... I've seen the fear, the desperation on uh, my neighbors in Brooklyn. Uh, I was just riding the the subway yesterday and, you know, looking in people's eyes and and understanding the deep impact this is having. It's it's unlike, I would say the closest thing in my experience is uh, after 9-11 and Sandy, but this is even more widespread. It isn't just one neighborhood. Uh, it's every new yorker that's that's been affected in a deep way so i've i've felt that very personally um i've seen my sons uh lose uh, i have a son who's a senior in in high school and lose all of those rituals um that's a those are small things compared to the the loss of life that we've seen but there's no family in the entire city that hasn't been very directly affected who doesn't know someone who's been sick or or has passed away And so my hope is that we can take that pain, that suffering, and turn it toward uniting the city and making the city stronger. That's what happens when there's real leadership coming out of crisis, is that we take the pain and we resolve to come together as a community and rebuild stronger.
2: And as I wrap up, where can people go to learn more about you and your work?
3: Uh, You can find me on on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Donovan NYC. Uh, If you're interested in the campaign uh, and and helping there, uh, go to SeanForNYC.com. And uh, I look forward to, as we emerge from this crisis, being able to go back to that. But for now, as as you've said rightly, this is a time about helping New York through the immediate crisis. And uh, that's what I'm focused on.
2: Sean Donovan, thanks so much for joining me here today, and definitely I will have you back to discuss your campaign down the road.
3: Jeff, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Take
2: care. So each day we hear about numbers and how – More recently, fewer than 500 people have passed away as a result of the virus in the city in the last day or two, but it's still a large number, and when we talk about numbers, it removes us from thinking about the individual lives, who these people were, what they were about, and how they were loved. Our correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston, has been talking with New Yorkers about how they are coping with this new normal. She spoke with Alex Aronovich, a married gay man who lives in Manhattan, who discussed how he was turned away after being asked to donate, asked to donate plasma following his recovery from COVID-19. Here's her segment.
0: Listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's coronavirus diary.
5: My name is Alex. I am originally from Israel. I moved here to New York two years ago and I work for a big tech company doing uh, sales. I was one of the first few people to get sick and I was at home in bed for a week. And when once I recovered, I was contacted by a big medical provider here in New York uh, to come and donate plasma for those who uh, are having a bad time recovering from uh, COVID-19. So I applied online uh, to do so. That's how it all started getting interesting from that perspective. When I filled all those forms uh, online, they asked you all sorts of questions about who you are, where you're from, your age, everything. And I specifically told them, that i'm married to a man and that i'm not a u.s citizen and they called me to come and donate anyway and i asked them over the phone if all of my information was okay for me to donate because i was aware that sometimes gay men uh, were not allowed to donate blood uh, so i was just making sure that everything was fine but once i got there i asked the nurse to make sure that i could donate because i just don't didn't want to have my donation go to waste like sometimes i just take our blood donations and throw them to the trash so they called the head of the program to come over and she essentially told me that the hospital like all the hospitals in the city are subordinates to an fda regulation that doesn't allow for gay men It doesn't matter who you are who have had sex with another man uh in the last 12 months to donate either blood plasma or anything so essentially they called they called me to come over and then they just sent me back home because of my sexual identity it was very humiliating essentially because I, all I wanted to do is to give my part and try to help others, uh, recover from this horrible thing. And it's, uh, it was really just a reminder of how bad things can still be for minorities and people like myself. I'm an immigrant. I'm a gay man and I'm very sensitive to, to how society nowadays, uh, just has not only not gone forward and improved things for us, they, it's actually going backwards. Uh, so it was painful a few days before that my, one of my neighbors uh, a seventy five year old woman was like we needed to take her out of her apartment and and walk her out to the ambulance and uh, like we hear all the time about people dying there 's hundreds of people who die in the city every day, and I just wanted to do my part and it 's very frustrating uh that i am not seen I, I'm not seen as Um, pure enough or clean enough just because I'm gay and they don't know what my sexual history is, they don't know what my health history is. As a married person, I'm probably way safer than a lot of other heterosexual people would be to donate and they are allowed to donate but I'm not just because I married a man. I, I, I don't have words to describe exactly how I felt it was awful. Having posted about this on social media, all of my friends that reached out to me, people that were completely unaware that that's still the situation in 2020 in America and all over the world, it was a very empowering feeling having people be empathetic to what happened and and being surprised that that's still the case. Uh, But more than that, uh, it has empowered me to go out and find other ways to help my community. Uh, I've been seeing a a surge in people wanting to help each other and even here in, in Manhattan, where I live in my building, people are helping the more vulnerable population of the building go and get their groceries or do whatever is needed to help each other out. Uh, so it's uh, really nice to see Americans being more community-oriented and more family-oriented and actually caring for each other. It's, a, it's such an individualistic society that we live in, and it's a nice change.
0: Alex Aronovich lives in Manhattan. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's coronavirus diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19.
2: And that was our Celeste Katz-Marston. WBAI has been bringing you the voices of New Yorkers from all walks of life who've been impacted by COVID-19. I urge you to listen uh, to these segments, all of them. They're all online on WBAI's website at WBAI.org. Celeste continues to speak with New Yorkers, again, from all walks of life who've been impacted by this. So you're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM here in New York, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host of Driving Forces, Jeff Simmons. You just heard my interview a few minutes ago with Sean Donovan, and we talked a little about uh, homelessness and affordable housing. On last week's show, I had spoken with New York City Transit Interim President Sarah Feinberg, uh, who had talked about the challenges that are now faced by the transit system, particularly as more workers are testing positive. But also his ridership was plummeting to close to 100 percent. So this week, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but she has spoken out about how the city is the city. remember, she worked for a state agency. The city is not being aggressive enough to address subway homelessness during the pandemic. She said she's losing patience with the situation. She said we urge the city to take more aggressive steps to address this problem. It is without a doubt a city obligation and a responsibility. And at the same time, it's also being reported that Mayor de Blasio's administration has missed its own deadline for transferring About 2,500 people who had been in our homeless shelters to hotel rooms to help limit the spread of the coronavirus, even as deaths from the illness have continued to rise significantly within the shelter system. The mayor had said that about 6,000 people in city shelters would be relocated to commercial hotels by April 20th. But by early this week, the administration had transferred only about just over 1,050 people from that system over to hotels. And prior to this pandemic, it had been estimated that there were more than 60,000 people in New York City who were considered homeless. And that brings me to my next guest, Anya Duggan, president and CEO of the Partnership for the Homeless The organization, which is a nonprofit, is committed to building a just and equitable society and creating lasting community change through solution-oriented programs and policy initiatives that will eliminate the root causes of homelessness. Anya has more than two decades of expertise in nonprofit management, organizational development and diversity, equity, and inclusion, and in one of her earlier roles, She was vice president at the Food Bank for New York City, where she built the organization's research and policy wing to secure improvements in the U.S. Farm Bill, child nutrition reauthorization, and other legislation. And she also served on FEMA's Emergency Food and Shelter Board. So she joins me now to talk about the challenges that people who may be without a permanent home are now facing and about the challenges that are ahead.
0: Anya, welcome to WBAI. Hi, Jeff. Thank you, and thanks for having this conversation. It's important.
2: So I gave a description of your bio, but can you talk first a little about what the partnership for the homeless does for our listeners?
0: Sure. So I would say the driving force behind the partnership is our belief that um, homelessness doesn't have to be, you know, it's preventable. And so much of our programming is focused on preventing homelessness in the immediate moment and into the future. So effectively, It means programs like eviction prevention, housing counseling, landlord mitigation, assistance with vouchers. And then we also have health programming like HIV services, individual counseling, group work. And then we also work on um, education access for children in shelters.
1: And
2: how has the partnership had to adjust its operations and services as a result of the pandemic?
0: So our services remain fully operational during the crisis. But to safeguard our clients, as well as the staff and volunteers, we're conducting all meetings and groups virtually and via phone and have people working remotely. Um, People can actually access all the service information on the COVID section of of the website. Um, And the other piece I would say is that, you know, in addition to the usual services, there is some new work that we're focused on. I think our biggest concern really is what we are expecting as a tsunami of evictions That are likely to happen or they let's put it this way they will certainly happen unless some measures are put in place by our political leaders um, more than the eviction moratorium that's in place at the moment so much of the work is focused on advocacy to to ensure that doesn't happen and to build resources so that we can help the new yorkers who need financial assistance we've also done um a call project with our clients going back over a three-year period because we knew that they would be particularly vulnerable to the pandemic, both in terms of the health risks as well as the economic fallout. And so a lot of information is coming in from that group of New Yorkers around the needs that they're facing.
2: How would you assess the city's response? Has the city responded effectively, in your opinion?
0: So, you know, in looking at this, there are measures that the city has taken that we um, wholeheartedly agree with. And and also, you know, looking at the measures in terms of what the city, the state and the federal government are doing, because as a global pandemic, it's, it, it needs more than just local measures enacted. That said, there are measures that we agree with. And then I would say there are measures that are um, not happening fast enough. And then, of course, there are measures that we still need to see put in place. Some of the immediate stuff, right, are like making sure that people who are ill in shelters have access to isolation, some measures have been taken that make that possible, but not enough. Um, there, the measures you mentioned around moving people from the single adult side of the system out to vacant hotels—it's good to see that happening. But again, not enough of it is happening, and we need to see all of the individuals on the single adult side of the system moved into single room um, occupancy. And then on the eviction prevention end, you know, at the state level, it's good to see the eviction moratorium in place. But an eviction moratorium without other measures like rental assistance um, and increased funding for rental assistance and a rent and mortgage suspension. And, you know, we can we can talk more about those details. But without those pieces in place with a moratorium, a moratorium is effectively just kicking the can down the road.
2: And I'm glad you bring that up. So let's go to that. What are you know, I know there's legislation by Senator Mike Gennaris. He talked about uh, this on Max and Murphy here on WBAI about uh, I believe it was a week or or two ago. Uh, he wants to institute a rent uh, suspension, if I'm correct. uh what you know what do you think of the practical solutions what's or what's not being considered in the legislation that has been discussed or that officials are talking about that you think really needs to be considered what's the right approach
0: so part of sort of explaining this is painting a picture of what is likely to happen um, because I'm not sure that everybody can sort of see what's building in the background of the, of this pandemic and effectively what we're seeing is yet another curve building right so you know the number of people who have lost their jobs in the recent weeks is at a level we've never seen before i mean the unemployment numbers in new york went up by new york city went up by one percent just between february and march which is a huge jump in unemployment terms so we're now up beyond four percent and academics and policy think tanks alike are estimating that we could end up with an unemployment percentage somewhere between 13 and 30 percent. What's particularly important about that is that uh, it's mostly low-income households that are being affected. So two-thirds of the job losses are impacting people who are earning less than 40,000. And we know that one in four um, people who rent in New York, again low-income households, are paying more than half of their rent, or paying more than half of their income in rent. And we also know that these are the same households that are less than uh, $500 in savings. So if no measures are put in place, then you're talking about thousands of New Yorkers not being able to pay their rent. We've seen some of it in April. We will see more of it in May and yet more of it in June. So what's required is a combination of measures, not just one measure. So, yes, the moratorium, that's a good move, but it needs to be in tandem with a rent and mortgage suspension. Um and we also need to see increased funding for rental assistance and eviction pr- prevention programming. And then on top of all of that, especially at the federal level, we need to see individual assistance to make people whole who have lost their jobs and incomes.
2: What's so interesting about this is we talk about the moratorium, we talk about the the uh, suspension, and, you know, my whole perspective is that, After the moratorium ends, for instance, or any suspension, you know, period ends, uh, tenants are going to face significant debt, we're likely going to see more evictions, and that's going to it's going to lead to a higher rate of homelessness in the city. So should we also not just be looking at you know, a, a, a moratorium and a, and a rent suspension, but also about planning for to address an increased rate of homelessness in the city. And what are some of those things that we should start thinking about
1: now?
0: So, you know, if, you're right, that if we don't take care of these measures incrementally as we go, we're going to hit the end of the moratorium and we're going to have an unprecedented number of people with a level of rent arrears we've never seen before and all of them will be coming for help at the same time. And we know what that picture looks like on the healthcare side. So we have the ability to prevent that now. We, If we don't prevent it, we're going to be seeing evictions um, at numbers that we've not experienced before, and we're going to see a rate of homelessness, the like of which we've never seen before, in terms of the city, but also in terms of the nation. So, you know, we can see it coming. We have the ability to stop it, and we should. And so the first step is in not having mass homelessness um you know we already have mass homelessness in the city so we don't need to add to the problem so i would say the first measure is in not having it the second piece then that's evident from all of the talk about moving people to hotel rooms and some measures that have already been taken by the city is that the way we address homelessness um by putting people into shelters we are recognizing as inadequate right um if there's one thing that this pandemic has shown us it's the value of home we all now have a deeper understanding of the meaning of home and of of the definition, what actually constitutes a home. So we know home to mean safety, health, well-being. And we also know that congregate setting doesn't meet the definition of what most of us would consider home. So congregate settings are not an adequate response to homelessness. And before and after this pandemic, the answer is we need to provide permanent, affordable housing to people who need it.
2: And also of similar concern has been the health and welfare of a number of individuals who were in the shelter system. Uh, you know, some of what I've been reading this week uh, had re- uh, includes references that people who had gone through testing and, and had felt, uh, been felt to have mild symptoms were sent back to city shelters uh, and then had passed away. So, and people are being discharged who had tested positive. Do you think the city has really, when they you know started to confront this, had they considered all these factors? Do you think that they've been behind the eight ball in all of this?
0: So, there's a few pieces here. What we're really talking about are inadequate resources for more than one of our systems. Right. This is where the healthcare system and the um, shelter and housing systems sort of overlap with each other. And in fairness, the New York City shelter system wasn't designed to beat back a global pandemic. And so it's going to be inadequate on all fronts to do that, which is not to say that the people working in the shelter system aren't working hard. And I just want to be clear about that. There are staff going into shelters on the front lines every day of the week um, who are just as heroic as any of the other frontline workers that we're seeing across the city at the moment and, and should be valued and recognized for that. That said, the system itself, um, can't cater to the pandemic and it cannot keep people safe in the way that we should expect people in our society to be kept safe. But neither can the healthcare system, right? And so what's, what you see happening is people are being released from the hospitals because the hospitals don't have any choice. They have to release the people who have mild symptoms. And then you know, people are being placed back into the shelters or into hotel rooms um, and they're not necessarily getting the care they need. In fairness to all of the systems, there's a third sort of Character in this play, which is the virus itself, and we know so little about this virus. You know, you see the news reports today and yesterday. People are only beginning to understand the issue with blood clotting, which happens for people with mild symptoms occasionally, and then you have sort of rapid illness and and death in a way that you know people just don't. The doctors themselves don't understand yet. So it's not that any one of the systems um, can be blamed for what's happening in the in that sort of example that you gave. However. What we do know and what we do have control over is measures to socially isolate people and to put them in appropriate accommodation once they get out of the hospital settings. We can streamline the way that they're discharged from the hospitals. We can make sure we're only dealing with one city agency and not two. We can make sure that they're going to safe, warm hotel rooms. We can make sure they have ready access to medication. And we can ensure that they're being checked on regularly and not being left for hours and sometimes days without somebody checking in on them.
2: You and I have talked about this before when it comes to the stigma associated with homelessness. How do you feel this this that the perception of homelessness in the city is being you know altered amid this pandemic? Do you think that coming out of this there's going to be less stigma that people are going to have a much better understanding? Of the scope and of homelessness and the challenges, or do you think that those who already are homeless are going to face even more stigma?
0: So you know, I mean, my experience um, for a long time now is that the vast majority of New Yorkers um, have deep empathy for people who are experiencing poverty and homelessness and and hardship in in a myriad of other ways. And that most people are supportive of the idea of affordable, permanent housing and agree that people should not be warehoused in shelters. So I think that for the majority of New Yorkers, the sort of attitude will remain the same, that we should take care of everybody in society. I think that the um, silver lining of this pandemic, to the extent that it has a silver lining, is that it is, um, you know, I've spoken to a lot of reporters who say that, you know, the, the virus itself doesn't discriminate. And while that's true, our society does. And the virus is, if you will, pulling back the curtain on that or, um, or highlighting the fact that there's a lot of inequity in our society and we can see that people in congregate settings, we can see that um, you know some of our frontline workers who live in low-income communities are particularly at risk and that there's a lot more that we can do in society to safeguard those individuals um, and to make sure that there is equity for everybody when it comes to um, housing opportunities. So I think that you will see um, more New Yorkers understanding the issues of homelessness because they're front and center at the moment. And I think, you know, back to what I said earlier, I think we all have a new appreciation of the importance of home. And I think that will help people to have even deeper empathy with, with people experiencing poverty and homelessness.
2: And I've got just about a minute or two left. Where are we going to hear, where will the public be hearing from the partnership in the coming weeks and months as far as the issues you're going to advocate for?
0: So, you know, a lot of it comes down to some of the pieces of legislation that are moving at the moment, um, including, you know, an effort to get $100 billion included in federal stimulus efforts. And there's a lot of support, but at the elected level and advocates around the country trying to make that happen, it would mean $10 billion for, for New York. There's also rent and mortgage cancellation legislation at the federal level, at the state level, that we would be supporting, as well as all of the efforts in the city to safeguard people, Um, in shelters, you know, and then any of the work that we're doing would be on the website, um, which is partnershipforthehomeless.org, and so people can access services and and advocacy information there.
2: And, of course, I ask all my guests this, where can people go to learn more about your organization?
0: So they can go to the website, partnershipforthehomeless.org, but for people who want services, um, I would strongly encourage them to call us directly at 212 645 3444 Um, and I also encourage people who have any hardship to just call us even if we you know most of our programming is on eviction prevention um, health as I say and education but for any emergency services around food shelter access and so on we are able to help people with that as well and provide referrals so people should uh, feel free to call directly for for anything that they need.
2: Anya Duggan president and CEO of the Partnership for the Homeless I want to thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you, Jeff. So I uh, have only a few minutes left on the show, and I just wanted to make a personal plea to all of our listeners. And then I'm also, and, and then I'd like to tell you about a special event that we have coming up on Sunday. Uh, I've now been. Uh, volunteering for WBAI it'll be close to I believe it we're getting close to two years now uh, when I first started working with City Watch as a volunteer back then on Saturday mornings and now Sundays at six o'clock and then started this show that September with the wonderful Celeste Katz and I, I thank you so much for tuning in not just to this show but to let's talk with John Kane or Marisol on Sunday afternoons or Reggie overnight you know our listeners really are what keep us going and we rely on you. I mean, as you know, we are not corporate, we're not commercial, we're community progressive radio. We've been around for sixty years and we want to continue for another sixty and beyond that. And for those of you who might even be new to WBAI that you've, you know, been, you know, spinning the dial and you came across us and you've stayed with us, I thank you for doing that. And I, I stress the importance of of uh, of how you sustain us that you keep us on the air and you keep us going uh and many people do this by becoming bai buddies and that's what i am i give a sustaining contribution goes right into my credit card once a month uh it could be ten dollars or twenty it could it could be five though i'd like it to be a little more uh people usually do about fifteen dollars and uh, you could do this and show that, you know, your loyalty and your respect and your love for the station in multiple ways by becoming a BAI buddy. You can go to our website at Give2, that's the number 2, WBAI.org. You just have to then click on Buddies on the upper left-hand corner when the site opens up and follow the prompts. You could also call our call center. Just take a few moments and call 516 620 3602. Say you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of either Driving Forces or Let's Talk with John Kane, Any of the programs uh, that you listen to religiously. And there's one other way. If you're on your phone, just text WBAI to 41444, and then again follow the props on your smartphones. I really appreciate your support on this. So Uh, I'm coming to a close in just a minute or two, but I I first want to tell you about something that's happening this Sunday morning at six o'clock. It's a special broadcast. Earlier this week, the Acting Queensborough President Sharon Lee, in partnership with faith leaders and elected officials, held a Queens virtual interfaith vigil for the thousands of lives that have been lost in the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic and for the frontline and essential workers upon whom Queens relies. The vigil featured a number of familiar voices, uh, including our State Attorney General Letitia James and the City Public Advocate Jumani Williams, and a number of other faith leaders. We're going to bring you the vigil in its entirety between six and eight o'clock in the morning on Sunday to start your day. But here's just a sample of what you're going to hear
4: Queens is a borough of families, as we know and as we love. Here we have collectively suffered the loss of at least 2,800 souls. We will only get through this together and stronger if we remain united. As one borough, one city, in one state, we renew our resolve to salute the lives lost of our loved ones and double down on our ability to be a more united people, because as we come out uh, together on the other side of this, we're going to come out stronger and more united. Today, let us
2: stand in agreement for the healing of our homes, communities, our cities, state, nation, and the world. God in this moment has allowed a great pause in our nation and the world to reevaluate what is really the true value of our existence on this earth.
1: It's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And darkness is very real and very threatening. And yet the light is powerful within the darkness.
2: And you will hear that in its entirety. That started off, by the way, with Sharon Lee, the Queens acting uh, borough president uh, at 6 a.m., This Sunday here on WBAI. I want to again thank my guests, Sean Donovan and Anya Duggan. I also would like to thank our wonderful WBAI correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston, for her contributions to the show and to the station. And I again encourage you to go to WBAI.org to listen to all of our Coronavirus Diary segments. And I I want to applaud our amazing engineer, Reggie Johnson, who's in the studio today making all of these shows happen in uh, as much as possible. Tune in to WBAI this Sunday at six o'clock for City Watch. My co-host David Brand will be in the anchor seat. And again, you'll have another installment of one of Celeste Katz's coronavirus diaries. And if you missed any part of the show, visit us at WBAI.org. Go to programs and then archives. Thanks again for joining me here today. My thoughts are with all of you. I wish you good health in the coming days and weeks. Have a great day.
4: we are your one-stop shop to feed you and your family.
3: We've had to argue with management over whether or not we could wear gloves. That became a point of contention. Crew were told. If you want to hear more about what it's like to work at Trader Joe's while in a pandemic, tune in to our new show, Working Class Heroes Radio, this Thursday, April 23rd at 730 PM. Right here at WBAI 99.5 FM.
2: Words of comfort and solace during a time Words of comfort and solace during a time of darkness. Voices of faith leaders and our elected officials. This Sunday WBAI presents an interfaith vigil led by Acting Queensboro President Sharon Lee.
4: Queens is the borough of families, as we know and as we love. We will only get through this together and stronger if we remain united. As one borough, one city, and one state, we renew our resolve to salute the lives lost of our loved ones. Today, let us stand in agreement
2: for the healing of our homes, communities, our city, state, nation, and the world. It's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And darkness is very real and very threatening. And yet, the light is powerful within the darkness. Tune to WBAI this Sunday at 6 a.m. for an interfaith vigil for the thousands of lives that have been lost and the frontline and essential workers amid the coronavirus pandemic.
4: I'm New York City Health Commissioner Dr. oksidis barbo As the city's doctor, I have an urgent plea to New Yorkers on behalf of all the healthcare professionals fighting the COVID-19 outbreak, stay home. When you go out, you risk contracting or spreading coronavirus to others. Even if you're young and healthy, you can spread the virus to someone at risk of serious illness and even death. When you do go out for essentials like groceries or medicine, maintain a safe distance between yourselves and others. Try for six feet, whether it's on the sidewalk or in a checkout line at the store. I know it's not easy. We're New Yorkers and we love to be out in our city. But we have to change how we live quickly if we're going to slow the spread of the virus and stand a fighting chance to save our families and our neighbors. On behalf of everyone working day and night in our hospitals and clinics, I am asking you to do your part. Stay home to save lives.
1: And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The previous program was driving, driving forces with Jeff Simmons, heard Thursdays at 5 p.m. <clears throat> Stay tuned for the WBAI evening news coming up, followed by um, Justice Matters with Bob Ganji at 6.30. 7 p.m. will be the time where we clap in appreciation and association and solidarity to all of those individuals that are identified as essential workers. And then soon after that, a sing-along where we all sing together in (laughs) off-key.